0: The cholesterol in the food you eat has very, very little impact on the cholesterol in your blood. And it's like when you eat blueberries, you don't turn blue. When you eat broccoli, you don't turn green. So like when you eat cholesterol, the cholesterol doesn't just flood your arteries. Like That's just not how it works. And even if it did, even if eating a lot of high cholesterol foods like butter and egg yolks and cheese and red meat, even if that did raise the cholesterol in your blood, the amount of cholesterol in your blood tells you nothing about your risk for cardiovascular disease or your risk for having a heart attack.
1: You felt the crash after a sugar rush. You felt the boost of energy from nootropics. If you listen to this podcast, you've hopefully felt the study focus and clarity from being in ketosis. The point is, we all know that the food and supplements that we ingest affects brain function. Amy Berger is the author of The Alzheimer's Antidote, and she is passionate about the link between diet and brain health. Amy's research focuses on how a low-carb, high-fat diet can improve neurological conditions like Alzheimer's, and why the wrong diet can worsen and potentially even cause it. There's a reason why Alzheimer's is increasingly being called type 3 diabetes, and Amy is here to shed some light on why. Today we. Explore Explore potential root causes of Alzheimer's, the protein APOE4, and how it might affect brain health, and if cholesterol should truly be feared.
2: Happy 2019, folks. As a special thank you for supporting all of us at the HVMM podcast as we enter the new year, we are hooking you up with 25% off Sprint for this month's podcast offer. Sprint is our acute nootropic for focus and energy, and it's perfect for jumpstarting your day and kicking the year off right. Combining caffeine and L-theanine, Sprint has a synergistic effect that produces benefits beyond just one single ingredient alone. Sprint is zero calories, kicks in fast, and is dose-adjustable to your personal caffeine tolerance. It's a great replacement for an afternoon cup of coffee and a useful pre-workout. Caffeine has been shown to improve physical performance by up to 12% in some studies. So pick up yours today. This offer is only valid until January 31st, 2019. The link to the offer www.hvmn.com forward slash pod is included in the show notes as a business run podcast this is the best way to directly support the show and our work of course writing reviews and sharing the show with your friends are just as appreciated without further ado enjoy this week's episode of the hvmn podcast
1: hey amy thanks for coming on the program
2: yeah thanks for having me
1: So where are you dialing in from?
2: I'm
0: in Virginia, about an hour south of D.C.
1: I was actually in Virginia Beach a couple weeks ago. Okay. So I've been following you on Twitter for quite some time. I would say that you're within the keto Twitter circles of people being highly cited and disseminated. And before we get overly deep into your work around Alzheimer's, ketogenic diets, looking at cognitive impairment as an insulin-resistant problem, perhaps. Curious to hear your own personal journey. I know you're a veteran. I know a little bit about your background, but helpful for the audience to hear your personal journey here.
0: I came into low carb like a lot of other people do. I used to be heavier and I was not obese, but I was certainly chubby. And I was chubby despite doing what I thought was all the right things, you know, eating lots of those healthy whole grains and putting margarine on my whole wheat bread and all that (laughs) and doing lots of exercise. You know, like you said, I was in the military. I'm not afraid of a hard workout. I'm not undisciplined. I just couldn't lose the weight no matter what I did, no matter how hard I worked. And I was kind of fortunate that I didn't have any health problems. I really was just carrying extra weight. I do have a family history of type 2 diabetes and stroke and cancer. So there's no doubt in my mind that if I hadn't found low carb, my health now would probably be a disaster. But um, at the time that I found low carb,
1: I really was only dealing with some excess weight. So like nothing wrong with your lipids or your fasted blood sugar? hemoglobin a1c
0: i mean i was in my early 20s i didn't even really have a lot of that looked at in the first place um i remember i did have one blood test for some life insurance and i got like a higher premium because my cholesterol was high you know Um, but but that was before low carb anyway so who knows but no i didn't really have any major health problems that i knew of anyway so of course, lo and behold, the weight came off and, and the weight came off without me having to count calories or deprive myself of delicious food. And over the years, my interest in low carb and keto has evolved from just starting from weight loss to like all the other things low carb does you know i've said in other interviews that when you get to really know the science of how this works weight loss is like the least impressive thing that this does so i've branched out into more of that and then i've been in and out of a lot of jobs that i wasn't fulfilled by didn't really enjoy the work and it occurred to me, you know, I think I could be a nutritionist. Like I could actually help other people with low carb as a, as a full time job. So that's what I do now. And I, I get most of my income from writing in the low mm. carb and keto sort of community. But I do see private nutrition clients.
1: So you've been on a low carb ketogenic diet for how many years then?
0: Well, you know, I'm not perfect. There has been times where it hasn't been quite so low carb. But for the most part, I've been low carb since for the long term Since 2003. Wow. Before then, you know, I I started it in college around 1998 or so, but I really wasn't ready for it. I wasn't ready to do it long term. So it was kind of on and off. But... I have to specify, though, that for the most part during that whole time, I'm not super strict ketogenic. I'm low carb, but I'm not always super keto. I do bounce in and out of ketosis very often just by default of what I'm eating and what I'm not eating. But I don't always aim to maintain a ketogenic state all the time.
1: And that's pretty impressive given that the state of interest of keto really has exploded in the last, I would say, year and a half, two years. There probably wasn't that much resources for you to fully understand back in 2003. I mean, you must have been just completely in the woods with people thinking that you're crazy.
0: It's funny. You're right in that at that time, there wasn't a whole lot. There was maybe like one or two message boards. No, nobody had a blog back then. There was no blogs. There was, YouTube didn't even exist. Podcasts didn't exist. Right. But I have to say, I, I, consider myself fortunate and lucky that there was less information when I was new because there was less misinformation and there was less nonsense. Like right now, because this is so popular, it's all well and good that there's a million YouTube channels and there's a million, you know, sources of information. But unfortunately for every one piece of accurate, reliable stuff, you have to wade through nine pieces of garbage. And if you're new to this, you don't know what the garbage is and what the reliable stuff is. So I feel like I don't envy the people that are brand new to this.
1: I think that's something that we see being polarized on the internet in social media, where you have people on one side that are always like keto advocates or like the carbonati is one term that my friend Dr. Priyanka Wally mentions basically people that are just like it's almost a religion for them and then I think on the other side you have people that just are completely dogmatically against the whole notion of low carb and I think that really has not been helpful for the discussion. I think in our community, a lot of people are experimenting with ketogenic diets, intermittent fasting. And for me personally, I cycle in and out of a ketogenic diet. And I think really, I think the baseline is that there's some obvious things like refined carbohydrates, like sugars, but clearly bad for you. But assuming that you have reasonable diet, different types of diets are useful for different types of outcomes. If you're trying to train for a marathon and trying to bodybuild, you would have a different macro macro ratio and, and a ketogenic diet may or may not be helpful for your goals. So I think we should approach this in a more sensible way. And I think, yeah, I, no, I, I think, I, I think a lot of what you talk about, you know, seems to, you know, focus on the data and the science that's good and try to debunk kind of the craziness from both sides.
0: I couldn't agree more. I mean, obviously I, I recognize the amazing therapeutic potential of a medically therapeutic ketogenic diet but that doesn't mean that like this is the only way to be healthy the only way to support athletic activity and I do see a lot of ugliness coming even from our own community you know from people that I like and respect for the most part but even if I agree with what they're saying, sometimes the way they say things, you know, they make us all look bad when they resort to personal insults and personal attacks. It makes all of us look bad.
1: Yeah, it makes people on, on the low-carb keto side look like religious fanatics. And I don't think that's helpful to make this mainstream or where there's clearly utility in science and evidence that suggests that this could be very useful for a lot of the chronic disease that are facing Americans, especially, right? Pre-diabetes, half a third of us to half of us are all pre-diabetic. Most of us are looking to go on the other side of obesity. But I think one thing that I think, especially that you're focused on, which is emerging interest is Alzheimer's. That's one of these subtle killers that like a third of people over 85 have Alzheimer's, and it's probably higher because it's so undiagnosed. How did you start making that link from the broader impact of a ketogenic diet? Obviously, you saw your personal body composition improve. Why did you start narrowing your focus towards Alzheimer's and neurological conditions?
0: It kind of happened, not by accident, but like by serendipity. Um, The first place I ever heard about a connection between insulin, glucose, and Alzheimer's was in Gary. Taubes' book, Good Calories, Bad Calories. I'm sure a lot of the listeners and viewers know that book very well and know who Gary Taubes is. He had a chapter in there that covered dementia, cancer, and aging. And it was the first place I ever heard about this potential connection. And I don't have any family history of Alzheimer's, so it wasn't like that big in my mind, but it was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting, huh? Look at that. And it wasn't until maybe three or four years later that I was getting my master's in nutrition and I had to write a thesis. And instead, of we had a choice between doing a literature review or an original experiment. So I was going to do a literature review. Basically, you just scour the scientific journals for a deep dive into some particular topic. And when I had to pick the topic, I said, you know, what is something that I could research that hasn't been written about a million times already, something that I would actually learn, like something that I would be interested in and something that there would be enough research on that I could even write a thesis on it. So when I just, I said, you know, I'm gonna, let me go back to that Alzheimer's thing and see if there's anything there. And even in just my initial look through like PubMed, through some of the, the online databases, I was like stunned at what I found. There were so many papers. It was everywhere. And I couldn't believe that if I had already been low carb for many years by this point, and I had never really heard of this, and I'm into this stuff, and I don't even know about it. What about the people out there that have this condition or whose loved ones have this condition that they don't even know about low carb, let alone the connection between glucose and Alzheimer's? Right. So... I didn't start out from a point of like, I want to learn about Alzheimer's and insulin. It was like, I have to pick a topic. Maybe, maybe there's a couple of papers on this. Well, yeah, there's a lot more than a couple.
1: Yeah. So let's survey what this is. So oftentimes on the program, we nickname Alzheimer's as type three diabetes. So what is this function there? And how do we compare that to the amyloid hypothesis, sort of the Mainstream therapeutic approach to finding drugs to cure Alzheimer's. What is our thesis, the low carb, sort of the glucose, insulin, Alzheimer's thesis? and how do those interplay
0: so like you said they regularly refer to Alzheimer's disease as type 3 diabetes they also call it brain insulin resistance you'll see all these things in the medical journals and where that comes from is the primary problem in the brain of somebody with Alzheimer's is that the brain has lost the ability to effectively metabolize glucose so I say that this is a metabolic problem metabolic meaning energy it has to do with the way the brain gets energy this is a fuel shortage in the brain. And because of this fuel shortage, the neurons basically starve and they atrophy, they wither, they shrivel up. You can even see this on MRIs. They can see the physical matter of the brain shrinking. The question is why? And we don't know. That is the problem in the brain, but we don't know why it's happening. We could speculate as to why, but we don't know why for sure. The amyloid hypothesis is basically that there's a buildup
1: of these like plaques, these tau proteins, amyloid. Yeah.
0: I mean, the tau and the amyloid are two different things, but it's, it's these misfolded proteins that are accumulating and getting in the way of cellular communication. And amyloid is a perfectly normal process. Everybody secretes these proteins. The problem in Alzheimer's is that they're not cleared away properly. And when these proteins are secreted out of the neurons, they build up outside the cell. And when they build up to a certain concentration, they start to cross link and solidify into these infamous amyloid plaques. And these plaques can actually get in the way of neuronal communication. They sort of just like gunk, gunk up the works. And so it makes sense. Oh, well, okay. This amyloid is getting in the way. Well, this, this must cause Alzheimer's. This is the cause. And so for all these years, all the research dollars, all the effort has been focused on getting rid of these plaques, except, Not everybody who has Alzheimer's has a lot of plaque in their brain. And there's people who die from other causes with no signs or symptoms of Alzheimer's. And when they have their brain's autopsied, they do have a lot of amyloid. So this amyloid is either not the cause of Alzheimer's or it's not the main cause. And there's been many drugs, multiple drugs now, developed to reduce the formation of these proteins and plaques. And every one of them has been a failure. And I say that they've been a failure in the sense that These drugs do reduce the secretion of the proteins. They do reduce the plaque formation. But those reductions have never done anything to improve the disease. You get rid of the proteins and plaques, or you reduce them, the Alzheimer's still progresses. It still gets worse.
1: But the cognitive impairment is still there.
0: Yeah, it does nothing to improve the issue. Like, And the phase three clinical trials on one of these drugs had to be stopped early because the people on the drug were doing so much worse than the people on the placebo that they deemed it unethical to continue. Every time we get rid of this amyloid, people with Alzheimer's get worse. And I'm not saying the amyloid is meaningless. It does have an impact, but it's not what we think. And it's this substance that we've completely demonized. We've deemed that this is the cause of Alzheimer's. And if we could just get rid of it, then we've cured this disease. And we've done the same thing with cholesterol and cardiovascular disease. We've taken this one substance that the body actually produces and we've misunderstood it. We've mischaracterized it. We've gotten drugs or PCSK9 inhibitors. Yeah. If we could just get rid of every last molecule of cholesterol, then we've cured heart disease. Well, That hasn't worked out so well in the same way it's not working for Alzheimer's and the amyloid.
1: Right. I mean, cardiovascular disease is the biggest killer in America, and we have a lot of statins out there. Something doesn't seem to have done, but we we, we, we can (laughs) touch upon the statin story. I'm actually curious about that as well, but let's focus on Alzheimer's for now. So amyloid seems to play a role, but what you're suggesting here is that it is not the root cause. It might be a symptom of something's going wrong. So, what is the brain insulin resistance theory here, and what does that suggest for therapeutic routes?
0: Chronically high insulin is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. Even if your blood sugar is normal, even if you don't have diabetes, regardless of your family history, regardless of your genetics, chronically high insulin is a risk factor for Alzheimer's. The funny thing is, though, that. We have high insulin, what we call hyperinsulinemia in the periphery, meaning in the rest of the body. In the brain and the central nervous system, people with Alzheimer's seem to have less insulin. Mm. Now, the thing is, glucose transport and glucose uptake into the brain is, for the most part, not insulin dependent. You don't need insulin to get glucose across the blood-brain barrier. But there are insulin receptors scattered all throughout the brain. So we know insulin is doing something in there you know, it's doing something for cognition or healthy brain function. And when they administer intranasal insulin, they give insulin via a nasal spray and it gets directly to the central nervous system. People with Alzheimer's have improved cognition, at least in the short term, you know, it's a very short term effect. So why is insulin not getting into the brain or why is the brain not using insulin properly? They don't know. There's a lot of unanswered questions in this disease, but there's no doubt that the primary problem is a fuel shortage. And it's specific to glucose. It's, you know, because the brain, we can get into ketones and some other stuff. Glucose isn't the only fuel the brain can use, but in most people eating a typical Western high carb diet, glucose is going to be the major fuel for the brain. And so if the brain has lost the ability to metabolize glucose and get energy from it, it's going to have a major impact on cognition.
1: And I think some of the results from Stephen Cunane's work, you can actually do PET scans in the brain and detect lower glucose metabolism in patients with Alzheimer's or with cognitive impairment. I mean, so I think just to double down on your point here, you can actually measure the glucose uptake differences between a healthy brain and a glucose. Stephen Cunane
0: is like my hero. He, (laughs) his work and his, I guess his students, his colleagues, they are amazing. Something that we should, like two points. One of them is, like we were just talking about the statins and cardiovascular disease. Alzheimer's disease is like, because we're talking about the amyloid, if if amyloid was driving this condition why would it be brand new? Why would we have this exploding epidemic now all of a sudden in human history versus 100 years ago, 300 years ago? This is a new disease, right? This is new in the way that like or not brand new, but it's exploding in incidence in the same way type 2 diabetes is and cardiovascular right. disease and PCOS and like, you know, hypertension, all of this other stuff that we know is driven primarily by high insulin.
1: So how about devil's advocate? How about someone would say, hey, just because people are living longer now because of modern health, modern medicine, is it because we're picking it up because people are just living longer? How would you respond to that kind of criticism?
0: No, that's a great question. And this was point number two I was going to make it is true that we have an aging population, right? We have the baby boomers, they're in their 70s now. We do have an older population. So any disease that preferentially strikes older people is going to increase in incidence. But you talked about the PET scan a minute ago, how you can actually measure what they call cerebral glucose uptake. Yeah. The decline in the brain glucose metabolism that is behind Alzheimer's disease is measurable in people in their 30s and 40s. So no, this is not just an old people disease. This is not exclusively a disease of the elderly. That metabolic problem starts when people are young. Mm. And at that point, you're young enough that you're able to compensate. The brain is still strong enough that it's compensating. It's only when this problem has gone on for so long that you cross the threshold where the brain can longer longer compensate. That's when you start showing signs and symptoms. But by the time that happens, this disease process has been in place for decades. So like nobody wakes up all of a sudden one day with Alzheimer's disease. Right. You know, that's not how this works. Just like diabetes. What happens? The insulin is going up. Insulin is going up. Glucose is going up. Glucose is going up. That happens for years.
1: Yeah. And if you think about how these manifest in terms of symptoms, it's there's a lot of analogs, a lot of parallels, right? These are not just like binary conditions. It, it, even something like cancer is not a binary condition, right? Like these tumors grow slowly over time until like a metastasize and it grows really, really quickly. But like you see a lot of these chronic diseases seem to have similar outcomes, which suggests maybe there's similar inputs that drive these diseases. So one thing that I think is just open discussion is Alzheimer's even one singular disease. I mean, it sounds like you have multiple etiologies of where this disease comes from. What are your thoughts about that? Or do you really think that it is a core brain insulin resistance problem?
0: The audience probably knows the name Dale Bredesen. Dr. Mm. Bredesen has one of his papers. He identifies three subtypes of Alzheimer's that have kind of different origins. In my opinion, Alzheimer's disease is one disease, and it's the reduced glucose use in the brain. I think there are other kinds of dementia, other kinds of cognitive impairment that I would not call Alzheimer's. So, like dementia is the big umbrella term that Alzheimer's is one form. You have vascular dementia. You have like, you know, some of these other things. So my answer is is both. It Maybe it's it's one disease and it's not one disease. No,
1: that makes sense. I mean, I think it's how you subsegment. But I think you're right. There's different ways that the brain gets damaged, right? There could be something yeah. like TBI or, or, or CTE over just a lot of brain collision. That's gonna probably have a different etiology than a brain glucose metabolism issue with like what right. you're defining as an alt- classic Alzheimer's exactly. and just broader dementia. So now that if we identify brain insulin resistance as a root cause, then what would that imply in terms of a therapeutic strategy, right? Cause like the drug companies have focused on amyloid the amyloid thesis, and as you mentioned, those programs have failed, and I think most of those big drug companies like Pfizer and Merck have pulled their neurological programs, which is which is scary. That they've kind of waved the white flag against one of the most pervasive, insidious diseases facing modern humans.
0: That's very scary. Like yeah. like we give up. We've tried so hard for so long, and we just give up. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think I think that goes to show that. Not that this is an untreatable condition, but that they're approaching it from the wrong avenue. Just like when we give insulin to type 2 diabetics, nobody gets better. They right. don't get better. They get worse and worse and worse and they die. They lose right. legs. They lose feet. They lose eyes. That's not a treatment because you're addressing the wrong thing. Yeah. So if this is a metabolic problem, we have to treat it with a metabolic solution. If, And again, we don't know why the brain glucose metabolism is impaired, but that we know that it is impaired. And we know from Dr. Cunane's work and from some other work that even though the brain is not able to properly metabolize glucose, an Alzheimer's riddled brain still will take up and use ketones. And so the answer, at least the partial answer, is if this is a fuel crisis and it's specific to glucose, is there some alternative fuel that we could give these starving neurons everybody listening knows, yes, there is. Thank goodness. We can give these starving cells ketones. So right off the bat, whatever else may be going on and whatever other interventions might help this, like number one place to start, ketogenic diet or exogenous ketones, give those starving cells fuel any way you can.
1: I'm curious, like what have you seen in terms of literature there, in terms of the case studies, the clinical results? Has there been either anecdotes or studies that you've seen that showed this as a more promising route?
0: There's been everything. I mean, we, we hear anecdotes from people taking this into their own hands and doing it themselves there are some clinical trials. A lot of it is animals. A lot of it is rodent studies, but there are human studies with people with Alzheimer's or with the precursor, which is called mild cognitive impairment. And most of them have been done with exogenous ketones, not with the diet, possibly because if you only give the ketones as opposed to the diet, it's one thing that you can measure versus like a diet. It's, it does so many different things. You know, what, what is the mechanism that's actually making them better or not making them better? with the exogenous ketones all you're doing is giving the ketones there's no nothing else happening and people generally do have improved cognition um not everybody there are some people who don't respond as well as others but this seems to be the most promising thing so far and and dale bredesen's program he calls it keto light he doesn't i don't think he does the exogenous ketones he does Kind of like a lower carb, higher fat Mediterranean style diet, but he also includes a little bit of fasting, exercise, stress reduction, supplementation and hormone replacement based on somebody's own individual blood work. But in terms of the clinical trials, yeah, we do have some pretty promising stuff on ketones for this disease.
1: It sounds like Bredesen's protocol is very similar to to how a lot of our communities and our listeners are just doing that for lifestyle, right? Just yeah. incorporating intermittent fasting, you know, low carb diet, that's going to elevate ketones and that will cross the blood brain barrier and hopefully provide an alternate feel, as you mentioned. And I think just like commenting on the difficulty of running a ketogenic diet study, I mean, as we were, interfacing with different scientists, you can just imagine that if you're looking at a population of people with mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's, it's very, very hard to put these people on a ketogenic diet if they just don't understand why you're feeding them so much fat. So I can imagine that like an exogenous ketone or things like MCT oil, which are ketogenic precursors would be amenable. And as you mentioned, I think Cunane has some interesting work around MCT oil recovering some of that brain energy deficit from glucose uptake deficits with something like MCT oil. So it seems that there is some sort of correlation between the amount of blood beta hydroxy beta rate with the energy deficit that you can recover in a mildly cognitively impaired brain.
0: Even for me, some days it's hard enough to stick to a low carb diet. Sometimes you just want a donut, you know? Yeah. For somebody who's young and healthy and wants to do a low carb or ketogenic diet, it can be difficult enough, let alone right. when it's somebody who's impaired. And if especially if they're so impaired that they have somebody cooking their food for them. It's right. so hard to be a caregiver And then to say, well, now I have to like cook all the special food and do this crazy stuff. That's not a reason not to do it. But yeah, I totally agree. It's, I understand why it's really hard to do the diet in studies. Um, And also there's still a lot of fear, like, you can't give these old sick people egg yolks and butter, you know, you'll kill them. Like, so there's still a lot of fear of the high fat aspect of the diet. But I think... Coconut oil and MCT oil and exogenous ketones can be a godsend. Like I said, get get ketones into these people any way you can. Right. But I think that the ketogenic diet and combined with other lifestyle things that help reduce glucose and insulin or improve insulin sensitivity, whether that's exercise or fasting and all this stuff to whatever extent we can potentially not just halt the disease or slow it down, but actually reverse some of the damage, that I think requires a fundamental big change in diet and lifestyle. Just giving the ketones, whether it's through the ester or the salt or the MCT oil, just providing the fuel isn't going to do that. Right. That will help improve memory and, and cognition, which like we want to do that. But in terms of actually possibly reversing some of the problem, the ketones alone aren't going to do that.
1: I agree with you. So yeah, I mean, if you're using a ketone ester and you're still drinking soda, eating donuts and still spiking insulin and still building up the insulin resistance, you might get some short term benefit like doing an intranasal insulin pump. But yeah, you want to be reversing your insulin resistance, improving your insulin sensitivity.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Short intermission here to remind you about this month's podcast offer of 25% off of Sprint. Previous podcast guest and professional gamer, Vince Mancini is a particular fan of Sprint. Let's hear about his experience. I was doing tests with the Sprint and I see this is a very good sweet spot because I could have the concentration of the alternate without the jittery of the coffee and I could actually pay attention. So this product is extremely effective. Thanks, Vince. To claim this offer, which is valid until the end of January 2019, type in www.hvmn.com forward slash pod. Now back to the podcast.
1: To be a devil's advocate here, there was a clinical trial done by Sarah with their MCT oil product called Exana, which didn't pass, I believe it failed phase two or phase three. So have you looked into why MCT oil food, medical food failed? I mean, that, you know, I I think there's multiple reasons why one could see that that trial failed. But just to, you know, be complete here, have you looked into that result? Any thoughts on why they didn't see any changes from MCT oil as a supplementation for these patients?
0: I think they did find it did improve cognition in some people, not in everybody. I think specifically the people with that APOE4 gene did not have improvement. So, as to why that particular thing failed, I don't know. I think some of the papers I've seen, it was successful, but not in everybody.
1: Right. The phase, I mean, the phase one was successful. That's why I rolled into a phase two. And I think the phase uh-huh. two, you know, they're basically coming back. They're reformulating. They Basically, uh, like their, their claim is that it didn't raise the beta-hydroxybutyrate levels high enough.
0: If I had to guess, it could be either that, that it wasn't effective enough, or that, like we were just saying, some of these people just raising ketones alone might not be enough, right? They might have to have other stuff going on, or whether, you know, if like, if somebody's on a statin drug, and their brain is deprived of cholesterol, or they're B12 deficient, they might have other things that are interfering with healthy cognition, where like, even just raising ketones alone might not help. But yeah. I, I'm speculating, I don't yeah.
1: know. I think it's just helpful for the discussion that it's just nuanced. It's not just like we have figured this out. I think there are interesting pieces that seem to be working and there's a direction of research. But I think we're gonna get more and more fine-tuned exactly how a therapeutic strategy can be approached. And I think, you know, I think going back to some of the positive stories and anecdotes, there was a 2015 case study published by Mary Newport and Richard Veitch showing that a ketone ester was able to reverse Alzheimer's symptoms so on the plus side there also is peer-reviewed data showing that this strategy around brain insulin resistance and using ketones as an alternate fuel source does work so yeah there is still work to be done you know I think like folks like Stephen Kunain are you know, we're looking at how we can do more and more data here to actually fine tune these strategies.
0: It's definitely not a magical cure. Like it's not a silver bullet. I do think it's the most promising thing we have right now, especially considering there is literally Nothing else. There's no alternative. There's no effective pharmaceutical drug for this condition. There are drugs on the market, but they don't do anything. They don't stop the disease. They don't reverse it. They're just, I don't know what they do. They're palliative. They're totally useless. (laughs) So this might not be the perfect solution, but it's like the most promising That we have, I
1: think, for now. Yeah, I think that's well justified given the body of evidence there. One thing that people interested in the space might see pop up, and to get your thoughts on this, is APOE4, these genetic markers that seem to be if not correlated, potentially causal to things like Alzheimer's or traumatic brain injury. here's here thoughts about you know, AP, APOE2, 3, 4. Do we think there's a relationship with those genetic markers to ketone metabolism or brain insulin resistance?
0: I'm not as familiar with how those genes specifically influence like ketone uptake and metabolism, right. but APOE4 is right now the strongest known genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's. So people with one, you know, heterozygous, one copy are increased risk. People that are homozygous that have two copies of E4 have something like 50 to 90% chance that they're going to get Alzheimer's. Yeah. But I'd like to point out that if you have a 50% chance of getting it, well, what does that mean? you have a 50% chance of not getting it. So what is it that that flips that switch? What is it that triggers that susceptibility? And all I can do is pass on what I've learned from the scientific literature. It's believed that the ApoE4 allele is the oldest one in the human family. Like the ApoE2 and 3 appeared later in human Hmm. evolution. So the ApoE4 is the most ape-like, the one that was, like, really forged in our hunter-gatherer times or before. So, it's the one that is the absolute worst match for the modern diet that is mm. so different from the diet that this gene may have been forged during, like, a higher, higher either either higher fat, higher animal fat, higher green vegetable consumption, but certainly not a genotype that's suited to Doritos and Pop-Tarts and Mountain Dew. <laughs> right. So it's not that this gene causes Alzheimer's. It's not an inherently harmful gene. It's it's only harmful when you combine it with a diet and lifestyle that it's really not suited to thrive in. Right. And, and I would say the APOE2 and 3 are not suited to thrive in it either because... There's millions of people who have Alzheimer's that don't have E4 genes. And there's millions of people who are homozygous for E4 that don't develop Alzheimer's. Right. So having E4 by itself doesn't cause it. I think they've done the study in Nigeria. I think like tribal populations in Nigeria have the world's highest incidence of the ApoE4 gene. And you know what they don't have?
1: They don't have Alzheimer's.
0: They don't have (laughs) Alzheimer's. So, I mean, I I don't mean to laugh, but like I just I, if I can reassure anybody out there, APOE4, it's not a death sentence. It doesn't cause Alzheimer's, but you have to be careful to eat and live in a way that doesn't, you know, trigger that increased susceptibility because it definitely does increase risk. I'm not saying it doesn't. Right. It does increase risk when combined with the modern diet and lifestyle.
1: Yeah, I think that's well articulated. One thing that has been fascinating to me is that there's actually a similar correlation towards traumatic brain injury and concussion with APOE4 versus APOE2 and 3. Uh, I don't know the exact specifics, but it's something like 10 times more likely to get a concussion when hit with a traumatic brain injury. So that suggests that there's some interesting relationship between etiology of a TBI and CTE, which is down the line, which we might've heard of from the NFL. A lot of these players are coming out with CT and Alzheimer's.
0: You're going to have to get like Dave Feldman or Siobhan Hoggins or someone on your show because I think APOE4, it's like one gene, but it influences so many things. And yeah. one of the things that it really seems to influence is something with regard to lipid processing. And like, that's the extent of my knowledge. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't know much about it beyond, but something with cholesterol, with fat handling, which would obviously impact the brain or like maybe somebody with an E4 could have the same... Physical impact to the head as somebody E2 or E3, but they are going to have a major injury a major problem, whereas maybe the others don't. And that could have to do with the repair process with the cholesterol and the fat and the brain. I mean, I don't know.
1: I want to get into one of the initial threads around statins and cardiovascular risk, but any other exciting developments in the Alzheimer's, keto, low carb world that is worth mentioning? I mean, I feel like we've covered a good amount in terms of kind of the basis, why traditional methods have failed in terms of amyloid hypothesis. And what are the most exciting future research directions that you're most excited about?
0: I'm just sort of heartened by the fact that this sort of alternative view is getting more attention now because as more and more of these drugs fail and people start to question that amyloid paradigm, we're starting to see more attention toward this other stuff. And even in like Time Magazine, CNN, mainstream media, you're starting to see more articles now about like high blood sugar linked to Alzheimer's risk, high high glucose and risk for dementia. So as to whether or not the public is actually paying attention to it, I don't know. But, you know, I hope it isn't going to take another 20 or 30 years before this is mainstream knowledge. But at least there are more and more researchers now saying, you know, we got it wrong with this amyloid thing.
1: Does it feel like it's accelerating? I mean, just, you know, looking at this Space and working professionally in this broad area, it does seem that the type 3 diabetes moniker is seeming to catch some sort of traction where a layperson would be kind of, oh, I kind of read that somewhere. Do you feel optimistic that it's catching on and accelerating? Or do you feel like, um, I mean, since 2003, is it kind of just like some slow linear slog?
0: It's really slow. Okay. It's too slow. Like, I think. For you and me, we're like, oh, this is everywhere. Everyone knows because we're going to the conferences where Stephen Kunain talks and wow. Del Bredesen talks and Dom D'Agostino and all these people like... We're preaching to the choir. We're surrounded by this. So this is a very loud message in a very small audience. It needs to get out. Um, I think it is getting out. It's just really slow.
1: Okay. So work to be done then. Hopefully these conversations like these help at least arm people with the baseline tools and observations and facts where they can start doing their own homework and research and reading.
0: I mean, something I think we're up against specifically with Alzheimer's is... You know, it's it's different with obesity. It's different with diabetes where nobody questions, well, of course, your diet affects diabetes. Of course, your diet affects cardiovascular disease. I think we're still in the early stages where someone's thinking, well, what does diet have to do with Alzheimer's? Right. Or like, well, if that's true, why wouldn't my doctor tell me? Why didn't the neurologist tell us that when they diagnosed dad or they diagnosed yeah. grandma? So I think we're up against that sort of like incredulity, that sort of like almost sense of shock that like, how could this be possible? Like, how how is this the, the problem in Alzheimer's, this glucose, diabetes thing? And my, my doctor
1: didn't even mention that. <laughs> Which seems so obvious after you read the literature that, yeah, you're if you're poisoning yourself chronically with things that we shouldn't necessarily be eating for 20, 30 years, it very much stands the reason that you would have these symptoms pop up. It's like the incredulity almost seems inverse now as you start learning and diving into the literature.
0: It's like, how could you not believe this? But okay, you know. <laughs> yeah.
1: So here's what your thoughts around on statins, cardiovascular risk. I mean, I think just scoping out a little bit, I think you mentioned when you're, we're, we're suggesting, hey, older person, eat egg yolks, eat butter, eat fat. And usually the typical response is, wow, you're going to give that person a heart attack. What's wrong with that misconception? Can you paint a landscape of perhaps why that seemed to be the the standard uh, message and why that might be wrong.
0: It's probably pretty obvious to most of the people listening now, but maybe there's some new people. The cholesterol in the food you eat has very, very little impact on the cholesterol in your blood. And it's like when you eat blueberries, you don't turn blue. When you eat broccoli, you don't turn green. So like when you eat cholesterol, the cholesterol doesn't just flood your arteries. Like That's just not how it works. And even if it did, even if eating a lot of high cholesterol foods like butter and egg yolks and cheese and red meat, even if that did raise the cholesterol in your blood, the amount of cholesterol in your blood tells you nothing about your risk for cardiovascular disease or your risk for having a heart attack.
1: But why do people say that? I mean, again, devil's advocate, like people will say like, hey, you have high cholesterol. Are you Are going to have a heart attack? Like where did that come from? It's
0: just what we were told. Why? You know, how, how, how long did I think that fat made me fat? And that's why I ate the I can't believe it's not butter light and my right. skim milk and my coffee because it makes – well, fat makes you fat. Of course it does. Of course right. cholesterol raises your cholesterol. And of course cholesterol clogs the arteries. When you've heard something for so long, so powerfully, even if it's a lie, even if it's false, you believe it because you've just heard it for so long. Right. And at least with the cholesterol, we're starting to learn more and more that that's not the case. But it's still gonna take a long time before that's really, truly accepted and people no longer fear eating these fatty foods.
1: You mentioned Dave Feldman. I think his work around cholesterol and and his citizen science has been really helpful for me personally, just like seeing the differences between LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, and realizing that LDL in of itself, which is typically known as the bad cholesterol, isn't a good indicator or marker for cardiovascular risk. And it's really the holistic story around HDL cholesterol, triglycerides, inflammation markers like C-reactive protein, blood glucose, fasted insulin. And like that whole picture of stories really is a lot more clinically useful for cardiovascular risk than just some arbitrary LDL cholesterol marker, which came from one observational study, the Framingham study, which you (laughs) might've heard of, right? Like that, and I think that's where a lot of these medical standard care uh, procedures really came from, one observational study done in a population which has ldl as a minor correlating factor but if you actually segment out hdl triglycerides the inflammation markers and it's not a signal at all which i think is telling in terms of why we think this way and then two perhaps why the statin usage doesn't really seem to make that much of an impact in cardiovascular deaths in america right if you just stack rank the things that kill people cardiovascular disease, like heart attacks, number one.
0: If high cholesterol was causing heart disease or heart attacks, then nobody who had quote-unquote normal or low cholesterol whether total or ldl no one that had low would ever have a heart attack or ever die from heart disease but they do every single day right i don't know exactly what the proportions are but i've heard it's something like 50 percent, maybe even more of people that have cardiovascular disease or that suffer heart attacks have what we would consider normal cholesterol right so clearly It's not what we think it is. They always use the example of Tim Russert, the news anchor. I think he was like an NBC news guy. And he was on a stat and he was on a super high dose. His cholesterol was, I don't, it was something ridiculously low. And he died from a massive heart attack. (laughs) Getting cholesterol low doesn't cure heart attacks and getting amyloid low doesn't cure Alzheimer's disease.
1: And I think that kind of scares me is that cholesterol is the base compound that you generate testosterone from, that you generate hormones from. And if you're just crashing your cholesterol levels, are you affecting your sex hormones? I mean, I think there's like a downstream cascading effect just by just jamming one variable down. What are you really impacting across the system? I mean, I think if you, again, look at silent literature, a lot of side effects that are at least somewhat concerning.
0: Oh, definitely. And I, I'm not a physician. I can't yeah. advise anyone to take medication or not take medication. But there may be a small subset of people that benefit in some way from statins. But for the most part, when you look at cholesterol and what it does in the body, why would you ever want to lower it? It's like the greatest thing ever. I mean, it's <laughs> the source of, like you said, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, cortisol, all the steroid hormones. We make, we make vitamin D from the cholesterol in our skin. You're brain is built out of fat and cholesterol if you don't have adequate cholesterol synthesis you cannot have healthy cognitive function which is why you know if you go to the mayo clinic website and the fda's website they list very clearly that memory loss and confusion and cognitive impairment are well known side effects of statin drugs Mm. So is loss of libido, depression, muscle pain and weakness. Like these are not little things to be toyed with.
1: You know, my dad is on statins. It's something that I've been like, hey, let's look into the literature a little bit. Let's actually like dive into why exactly... Are we doing the things that you you think you're doing? And again, like I don't think we're we're not giving medical advice. I think it's an important uh-huh. caveat and disclosure. But I think it's worth understanding from first principles how these things are are affecting us. Just like how we think about what kind of foods we eat, we should think about how you know what the pharmaceuticals, the supplements, the nutrition that we're eating—they're all impacting our system. Kind of a fun, maybe side thread here. Carnivore, carnivory—that's been a interesting. I guess sub-segment of the keto low carb movement that has gained a lot of notoriety in in, in recent months. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts? Have you have you experimented with carnivory?
0: I haven't done it myself. I would like to. I just I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can actually give up my last little vestiges of plant food. I actually have a, a very big blog post about it coming up for one of the outlets that I write for. In general. I support it. I think it's fascinating. I think if nothing else, it raises a lot of questions. So like those of us in the low carb and keto movement already knew that a lot of the conventional wisdom is BS, it's garbage nonsense.
2: Yeah.
0: But even with even having already accepted that the carnivore people force us to ask even more questions because on, on a good ketogenic diet you can still eat spinach and almonds and asparagus and these low carb higher fiber items and now the carnivores are saying well no you don't need fiber right. you don't need curcumin and you don't need resveratrol and you don't need probiotics and all this stuff and in fact that might actually harm some people not everybody obviously um I don't think we can make the claim that a 100% animal-based diet is like the true human diet or the apex human peak diet. Right. But do I think you absolutely have to eat broccoli in order to live and in order to have bowel movements? No. And even if I did think that, there's enough anecdotes and clinical data, not just anecdotes, to say that that's not true. Like we don't need... All this indigestible plant material and all these phytochemicals and stuff, they just raise a lot of fascinating questions. Like all, all of the nutrient requirements, the RDAs, DRIs, whatever you want to call them, were established in people eating higher carb diets. Right. So it is entirely possible that when you eat very, very, very little exogenous glucose, that your needs, your requirements for things change. Like vitamin C is the the example they always tout, but the same could be true of magnesium and vitamin A and God knows why. So it's really fascinating. And I think, do I think everybody needs to do it? No. Clearly we have millions, if not billions of people around the world who live long, healthy lives, eating vegetables. Yeah. So I don't think everyone needs to do it, but I think it should be offered as an option, especially for people that have already done paleo or keto or the specific carbohydrate diet, all these other things, and haven't quite had full resolution of whatever weird, odd, unexplainable health problems they have because most people who go keto will have like dramatic improvement in most of their issues whatever those issues are but some people will still kind of have some stuff they won't really be fully resolved or cured whatever you want to call it and maybe those people could have made some changes like maybe they thought they were doing a real keto diet but it's not you know they're not actually doing like what Stephen finney would call a well-formulated ketogenic diet they might be messing around with fat bombs and who knows what so it could be that they could have approached keto or low carb differently or maybe they really just do better on a carnivore diet i'm not opposed to the idea
1: yeah no i think you bring up good nuances where maybe it's just like a more strict elimination diet where on keto and on when you're getting the carnivores. Not just because like eating meat is magical. It's just like you just eliminated the mm-hmm. one random phytonutrient or, or vegetable that seemed to be triggering some of your issues. But exactly. but not necessarily meaning that All meat is the best possible Apex diet, as you mentioned. Yeah, it's something that I'm actually now personally experimenting with. As I mentioned, I cycle in and out of a ketogenic diet, and now I'm playing around with a carnivore diet. It's fairly similar, right? It's like instead of, you know, sauteing spinach with oil and, and cheese, it's just like I just don't eat that. just have just more steak. And are, are you just
0: doing, cause like a lot of the carnivores do all beef. Are you doing all beef? Are you doing other like pork and fish and stuff like that too?
1: Yeah, I do. I just had some bacon. Yeah, I think it's just very, very strict that they only eat ribeye steaks. Like, I, I mean, I think after, you know, Doing these kinds of experience personally, I think you have decent discipline now with you know, getting rid of like the delicious like croissant with the coffee type of a thing that I still think is very pleasurable. And maybe I work into that, just going all beef, but it doesn't seem to be any additional benefit for just like, yeah, I think, I don't know, some varieties is, is a delight in life.
0: I know some of the carnivores do all beef. They just feel better, but I do want to try it at some point. Again, I just don't know. I could do without... Most vegetables, but if I ever do it, it's going to be carnivore plus... Co- I mean, you see, I'm never going to give up the coffee, so it's yeah. going to be... But I know I know, some of the carnivores do make exceptions for, like, coffee or tea. Some of them will do wine or spirits, like distilled alcohol. Right. So that might be the way I go. I mean, certainly I have meals and I have days where I don't eat vegetables and I don't miss it. You know, it's not 11 o'clock at night. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, I didn't eat any mushrooms today. Yeah. So um, I think it's doable. I just... I don't know. I don't have any major problems that I'd be looking to resolve, but I'm open to the possibility that maybe I do have some stuff that I wouldn't realize I had those little nagging things until they went away. Right. So I'm willing to sort of like entertain that possibility.
1: And the anecdotes are interesting, right? Like I think obviously you take each anecdote with a grain of salt, but I think there's clearly some signal there, right? Like there's so many interesting results of positive benefit from carnivore. That's like it's just kind of personally interesting to sort of experiment with.
0: Yeah, but I wanna say too, like I have a bad habit of being like enamored with what's new and shiny. Like, ooh, carnivore, ooh, this, ooh, this thing. And we have to remember that We tend to only see the success stories we're hearing about all the people that are healing their autoimmune disorders and curing their digestive problems. There might be some people that have done this that did really poorly and they're just not all over Twitter talking about it. Fair enough. So I, I have to remember like for my own mind to be like, you know what, somewhere out there, somebody's doing this and not doing well, and we just don't know about it.
1: Maybe as a, as a last topic here, as you wrap up, you know, what are some of the misconceptions or issues? You mentioned that, you know, fat bombs might not ne- necessarily be the most ideal way to enter a ketogenic diet. What have you seen as a professional nutritionist here and, and given your experience with, with your clients? What has been sort of a well-formulated, well-adjusted ketogenic diet that you've seen people be able to sustain and what are the big mishaps or misconceptions that you see that are just being disseminated out there?
0: The first big mistake I see people making is overdoing the fat, especially when somebody's main goal is losing body fat. And I say yeah. losing fat, not losing weight. The reason this diet works is because of what is not in the diet, not because of what is. So the reason keto and low carb work is because there's very, very little carb. It doesn't work because there's a ton of fat. If this worked because of of a lot of fat, you could eat five bagels, and as long as you ate enough cream cheese and butter to keep your ratio of fat to carb really high, well, you'd lose weight, right? But I think you and I and everyone listening knows that it doesn't work that way. So it's not like, well, if you're not losing weight, eat more fat. If you don't feel well, eat more fat. (laughs) Maybe that's true for some people, but I get a lot of people writing to me who are skimping on protein because... They're eating a lot of fat at the expense of protein because they've heard all this nonsense about protein turning into sugar and kick you in, kicking you out of ketosis. So instead of eating an adequate amount of eggs or chicken or fish or pork, they'll eat fat bombs or they'll put three tablespoons of butter in their coffee and they wonder why they're not losing weight. Right. All the ketogenic state does is Make you a fat burner. It doesn't mean that you're going to burn your body fat, you could be burning the gobs and gobs of fat you're eating. So that's the biggest mistake. And then the other one that really gets people is chasing high ketones, thinking that they have to take measures to get their ketones to a certain number. Thinking that like, well, if my ketones were higher, I'd lose more weight or I'd lose weight faster. And there might be things you probably know from from the company that you run, there might be some issues or even like athletic performance that benefit from higher ketones, but higher ketones is not a fat loss strategy. And people are going to eat more fat or skimp on protein or fast or do all these things to raise their ketones. And it might actually be counterproductive. Like for most people... Being in ketosis at all, even if you measure and it's like 0.1, 0.2. Right,
1: it's like a binary switch.
0: Yeah, like you're either in or out. Being higher isn't going to get you more. And if you are dealing with cancer or a neurological condition, that might be different. But. For just overall metabolic health and especially for fat loss, you don't have to chase high ketones. You just have to keep carbs really low and the rest will take care of itself.
1: And oftentimes, as you mentioned, that the more keto adapted one is, your body is just better tuned to having a lower amount of ketones because you're using them as you're producing them. It's not like you have this kind of overload of this you know, overshot of ketone production, which I think brings up a good point. Like it's not necessarily about yeah, chasing metrics. It's about what your end use case is and not getting overly obsessed with like the random metrics. And I think that happens a lot with athletes or people that are overly focused on biometrics, right? It's like, okay, if you're in a cycling race, you're trying to win the race, not like do something on your power meter. And that may be a, a different analogy to something like your goal is weight loss. It's not chasing ketones, which I think is an important point.
0: Some people forget That we have three major fuel sources on a low-carb diet. There's glucose, which you can measure. There's ketones, which you can measure. And there's fat, which you can't measure. And the biggest, most predominant fuel on a low-carb or keto diet is fatty acids. It's not ketones. So even when you see sort of low ketones you could still be burning a high amount of fat. You don't know, we don't have like a fatometer. We don't have a little handheld fat meter to tell right. us how much fat we're burning. So people need to understand that you can absolutely be burning fat, be losing weight, have a fat-based metabolism, even if your ketones aren't high.
1: That's actually an important point. That I think is just over gloss because everyone is burning fat Period. I mean, even if you are predominantly a carb burner, it's always a mixture. And I think the nuance in the science is overly broad. Where it's like you're a glucose burner, you're a fat burner, or you're a ketone burner. It's like it's always some sort of mix.
0: Yeah, it's definitely not binary.
1: Are you shifting more heavily towards fat when you're eating keto versus shifting more towards carbs when you're eating a lot of carbs? And I think exactly. There's some nuance there. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, I think we open up enough can of worms for people to start like looking at doing their own homework here. But how do people find you? You know, what's exciting for you personally or for the rest of the year? Where do people follow you? What are the big things you're working on?
0: My website is tuitnutrition.com. It's T-U-I-T nutrition.com. That's my handle on Twitter, Tuit Nutrition. My book is called The Alzheimer's Antidote. You can find that on Amazon. There is a Kindle version, but there's no audio version. Coming up, I'm speaking at Low Carb Houston in October. I'm speaking at an event in North Carolina in September. But I'm thinking about a second book about men's health because Mm. there is, again, chronically high insulin is a driver of prostate enlargement, erectile dysfunction, all this cardiovascular disease, all of these issues issues that men deal with it, nobody's talking about insulin as the problem. So I may be doing that in the next year or so.
1: Just expand the, the closing thought here that for women, there's PCOS which is correlated with insulin resistance. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like you're teasing to the hypothesis. There's like a analog for men that's related to insulin as well.
0: There's scientific papers about this. They call it the male phenotypic equivalent of PCOS. (laughs) And people can search if they want to search like two nutrition male PCOS. I wrote a blog post about it. So it's, it's, it's out there.
1: Excited to see that when it comes out. I'm sure there's a lot of literature out there for half our community that are men that may be seeing some of these symptoms. That will be of interest. Thank you so much, Amy, for jumping on and and having this wonderful conversation.
0: Thanks for having me. And it's so nice to talk to someone else with a balanced sort of nuanced thinking because there is a lot of black and white and too simplistic thinking in keto. So good to talk to someone else that has a better perspective
2: on things.
1: Hey, cheers. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks. Thanks so much for tuning in this week, everyone. Remember to check out www.hvmn.com forward slash pod for this month's special podcast offer. For January 2019, that offer is 25% off Sprint. It's a new year, folks. Time to hit the ground running. Are you interested in getting $15 of HVMN store credit that you can use on our website? I thought so. Submit a written review on our iTunes page and then send a screenshot to podcast at hvmn.com. That email line is always open for guests, topic ideas, feedback, and questions. So until next week, listeners, stay sharp and train smart.